As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. This week's podcast is brought to you in part by Bill Taylor Enterprises. BTE is a manufacturing, design, and support company that specializes in high-performance automatic transmission assemblies and components for drag racing, off-road, marine, and street performance. Stay tuned to learn more about BTE's tune-up services. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's cool hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in Sportsman Drag Racing and the stars within it. Welcome to or welcome back to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss Jimrod Cap and... Crosby, North Dakota. On this week's episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. This is um, something that we're going to try to sprinkle in semi-regularly in the future, assuming, of course, that the feedback from you, the listener, is positive. Um, Occasionally, we want to bring in some of the movers and shakers of our sport to have discussions about our sport, not necessarily telling their story or talking about their win or um, promoting their event, but just talking about some of the big picture issues facing our sport, some of the hot button topics within our sport. Basically, some of the stuff that Jed and I discuss regularly here on the show, um, but just wanted added perspective um, from people deeply entrenched um, in our sport. And who better to start with than Scott Lennon? Most of you are familiar with Scott as the owner of DragRaceResults.com, arguably the premier 
website in Sportsman Drag Racing. Scott is also a racer, a long-time racer, as we discussed briefly um, in this conversation. Scott made a name for himself in the NHRA Super Gas category um, back in the 80s and the 90s, and then evolved and um, into big dollar bracket racing, where he has also had immense success over the years. In addition to Scott's on-track accolades, um, Scott is a very well-versed, very successful businessman, both inside and beyond the racing industry, um, businesses that pertain to racing in addition to um Scott is the, I don't know, founder, president, is the right word, um, of CollectorTethers.com and Drag Race Solutions. Um, Scott's also had his hand in event promotion, uh, ran the DRR Ultimate Series for a couple of years uh, with varied success. And just in general, I think that Scott brings a fascinating, unique perspective simply because of the wide range and diversity of involvement that he's had within our sport. Um, Scott grew up and began his racing in um, Idaho, near Boise and has since moved east. Uh, he lives near Nashville now, so he's seen both sides of the, the, the racing culture. He's been from NHRA racing to bracket racing, so he's seen that. Um, he's, he's got the perspective as both a racer and a promoter and a businessman, and when you combine all of that into to one, one set of eyeballs, one brain that has seen all of that, that has thought through uh, the various perspectives within our sport, I always think it's fascinating. And this conversation I found to be just that. Um, I hope that uh, it is entertaining and intriguing to you as well. Within this conversation, Scott and I discussed the current state and potentially the direction of big dollar bracket racing. Uh, we talked about its impact and effect and the correlation between big dollar bracket racing and local bracket competition, where he and I both kind of uh, cut our teeth and, and worked up through the progression and where that is today and where it may be going. Uh, we talked about the NHRA sportsman ranks and um, the affiliation or the connection between, between NHRA racing and, and big dollar bracket racing and local competition. And then towards the end of this conversation, I peppered Scott with some of the hot button topics that have dominated um, the, the bylines of this show over the last couple of months. Uh, we talked about Casey Pesnell and the idea that any 14-year-old anywhere uh, could take the wheel of a race car. We talked about house cars. We talked about uh, event structures and double entry structures and purse structures and things of that nature. So um, a lot of different directions. Here's a wide ranging conversation that again, um, I thought was just fascinating. And I hope um, that you as a listener feel the same way. So without further ado, here is this week's interview with Scott Lemon. It's time for the big interview on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. All right. Joining me now is the owner of DragRaceResults.com, longtime racer, race promoter, like has had his hands in every aspect of this industry. And um, our guest today is, is Scott Lemon. Scott, I'll, I'll allow you to say hello, um, and then I'll, I'll get into a little bit more of what we're, why you're here and what we're going to be talking about. Hey, everybody. Glad to, 
glad to join the podcast today. What we're trying to set up is um, I wanted to have a handful of guests, prominent guests, well-versed, diversified within our sport and our industry on to just kind of discuss the hottest topics, the trends, the where this thing is at, where this thing is going in regards to big dollar bracket racing, back bracket racing in general, where the NHRA classes fit in, what the future holds. And who knows, like maybe this will end up being kind of a recurring spot. We'll have you on to get your thoughts a couple of times a year. But you were the logical choice for where to begin here. Again, more so than anything due to your vast experience in, in from multiple angles and multiple perspectives of our sport. So for that, thank you for coming on with us. And just in general, as a place to start, Big Dollar Bracket Racing, Jed and I have talked about this repeatedly over the course of the last year, maybe more. As a racer yourself, because you've been doing this for, what, 30 plus years? Yeah, as crazy as it is, um, I was thinking about that the other day. And uh, first, let me say I'm I'm humbled that, that you would even reach out to me I just you know I guess it's it just the years go by and all of a sudden next thing you know you know you're 30 plus in and I was thinking about that and I I first raced in 82 so that's like 37 years which I mean I'm only 51 but I, I went down the track when I was 15 and uh you know so it's and of course then let me point out the the legal driving age at that time in the state of Idaho was 14 so I had a driver's license and, mm-hmm. and uh, drove myself to the racetrack and participated in high school drags. But um, yeah, it's uh, I'm just humbled that, that you guys even thought about me, you know, to, to reach out and get my perspective on some of this stuff. So let's backtrack then to, you know, you say you started in 1982, but say the, the early years where you first started getting serious about racing. And I know you had a lot of success in super gas, but let's keep it to bracket racing just for right now. Did you ever dream that the opportunity would present itself to enter a race that paid a guaranteed $1 million to win? I, a million? I don't know. But living where I lived and growing up racing how I raced, I always wanted to move forward and race in the bigger purses and that. And I don't know. I don't. I think I'd be crazy to say that I didn't think that. I I honestly, I think it seems like it's progressed the whole time I've been involved and, and it doesn't surprise me one bit. Now, if I say, look back when I was 20 years old or even 30 years old or whatever, and think that, uh, that we'd be doing that. No, nah, I probably never thought of that then, you know, I mean, heck first house I bought was, you know, $50,000. You can't, you know, you can't build a garage for that nowadays. So, so yeah. So thinking about a million dollars, but I'll tell you what, over the course of the last five years, I'd say it it came up in talk, and and it doesn't surprise me. Sure. No, I would agree with that. And I've said kind of my stance on this before on the podcast was that for years and years, particularly when when I was really involved in, in big dollar bracket racing myself and essentially doing it for a living, I didn't feel as though the purses that we were competing for were commensurate with the amount of money that the average competitor had invested correct and now that's caught up to maybe even the other extreme you know what i mean now you can you could justify your what in some cases you know either the average 
racing operation is probably a hundred thousand dollar plus operation at that level in some yeah, cases no significantly more than that but you can in some way justify that and saying well we're racing for a lot of money so that to me makes sense that it was always headed that way and i think it's kind of a a perfect storm a bit that the stars have kind of aligned that the economy supports that and, and on and on and on but here we are and to where it wasn't that long ago five years ago ten years ago max literally we would get half a dozen opportunities a season to race for $50,000 or more to win. No, not even, that, not even that long ago. In 15, there was two. In 14, I think there was three, but I used to only be able to, and two of those were shootouts. Right, you had the 50 grander that uh, Britt and Galen put on, Great American Bracket Race, and then the World Super Pro Challenge at Stanton. Those two were the 50 granders. The other two, which would have been the 64 car shootout, Randy Helton, Kelly Estes, mm-hmm. but that's a 64 car shootout. And then they had uh, down at South Georgia, South Georgia Motorsports Park, that a 64 car, $50,000 shootout. Right. And the million. But unless, I'm, but unless I'm wrong. Yeah. And then the million, of mm-hmm. course. And, and then, and that's it. But that, but you're talking, that's, that's only four years ago. <laughs> Yeah, that's, it's, it's crazy to think that now on the schedule for 2020, we have not one but two races guaranteed million dollars to win. This year, we have four events between the, the million, the Spring Fling million, the SFG 500, and the, the Fall Fling right. 500 that will probably pay more money to the winner than any of those races that you just talked about in 2014. Correct. What about, obviously, there's a market, there's a demand for this because all four of these races this season, I mean, the Spring Fling Million in Vegas was the, the largest turnout they've ever had. The SFG 525 was probably the largest turnout of an event that I've ever been to, say right. for you know, the U.S. Nationals or the Halloween Classic or something like that. Yep. It's obviously the, the Fall Fling Million is sold out, and it's hard to imagine that the original million wouldn't be successful if not be the biggest one ever. So they're all going to succeed. Can that last forever? Like, can there be four races of that magnitude that, that continue to have that type of success? Yes. Why? Because those races have got taken to the racing markets. They're in different markets. That's why my feeling is it's working and it will continue to work. I mean, you take, you take the promoters, you know, my good friend Kyle Seipel and his partner Peter Biondo and uh, the SFG group. They've taken these big money races to the markets compared to 10 years ago when we expected everybody from the whole United States to travel to one location. I mean, honestly, it's a brilliant move, Mm -hmm. but it's obviously a gamble because big money bracket racing is notorious for the Mid-South, you know, in the South, you know, the Southeast, whatever you want to call Alabama, if you will. Yeah, your area, uh, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, LA, Lower Alabama, right? <laughs> but I mean, so we expected everybody. I traveled from Idaho out to it. I traveled to to Atlanta, Georgia, from Idaho to go to the million. Well, when you start asking people to travel two, three thousand miles, you're you're talking about a select group, a very select group that can make that commitment. Well, now all of a sudden we take this type of race and we take it out west to an elite venue like Vegas, and that puts it in the home in the home front geographic wise for all the guys out west, so they can support that. It it, it makes sense. 
you take and put the SFG 500 up in Michigan and you, you put it in the heart of a whole bunch of racers up there, Ohio, Northern Indiana, Wisconsin, you know, all that area up in there, Michigan, you got a lot of racers now all of a sudden don't have to travel 10, 15 hours. There's, there's a lot of racers that aren't equipped or prepared or can take the time to make that type of trip. So why I think it will continue to work is, is just because of that. You take Bristol, Bristol's a great location. So that now they're spread out and they're, those races have gotten taken to the racers. I think that's the difference than five years ago or 10 years ago. No, that's a really good point simply because I, having, having attended each of the, the Vegas Million, the Martin Million, I'm entered in Bristol, I can just tell you that there is less crossover, there's less overlap in the entry list among those races than you would typically think. Like it is, there's probably, there's what the 50 to 100 racers that you can kind of count on to be of any event of that magnitude. Yeah, I think Other years, that, years yeah. ago it used to be 100 and, you know, or, or two years ago. There used to be 150 regulars that made the trip. Well, as the circuit got bigger, and you can call it a circuit because it's, it's just expanded, was well, that's gotten bigger. I mean, even some of the travelers don't have to, you only have so much time and so much money for entry fees. You know, the, so that list of those dedicated group that you're talking about has, has shrunk. What does the explosion of these mega events mean for, well, I'll use... Uh, the ultimate super pro challenge is an example like a long time established race that used to be one of the it's not fair to say it used to be one of the premier events on this on the calendar i think in like many respects it still is but it used to be one of the richest events on the calendar now it's just another 50 grander like where do those races fit into the into the picture going forward i think there's still a place for them no doubt i think that that intermediate event We'll draw more local. That will, you know, we'll draw more locals. Obviously, they're still spread out geographically in areas. You take like the Mid Michigan World Super Bowl Challenge this year. They had, I think, two hundred and twenty-eight cars on the fifty grander. I didn't get a go this year, obviously, because of, of the injury I had. But they've pretty much ran between two hundred and fifty and two hundred and thirty cars for the last four or five years. I think I've been going for like nine years now. And I think like two sixties, maybe as most as they've ever had. So obviously I think there's still a, a great market for that. So there's a lot of racers that don't want to go to a five, six, $700 uh, or 700 car entry uh, event. There's a lot of people that don't want to participate in pre-entry. So those promoters and those facilities, I think need to exploit those things to their, their customer base and, and do some other different things that excite the racers to come to those events. And I, I think there's still, I still think there's still a strong market for that. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. Like the, the angle, the marketing angle changes a little bit because now the prestige of winning a $50,000 race isn't probably what it was five years ago, but right. you've got other selling points. Like you said, you don't have to deal with the 600 plus cars. We're not going to race till five in the morning and sell it from, from that aspect. Yeah. What, what is your response to the racer that says that this influx of big dollar events has killed or is killing the local Saturday night program? I don't see it. I, you know, I deal with a lot of tracks, a lot of racetracks. I deal with a lot of, as far as 
promoting races and just whether it be doing a flyer for them or, or giving them feedback. I get phone calls from, from track operators. And I talk to these guys, a lot of these guys are my friends and a lot of racers that, that participate at the local level. I think we all got to have a carrot dangling out in front of us to some degree to, to make us look. I mean, when I grew up, I, I ran streetcars and then I wanted, you know, then I ran and then there was, you know, there was different levels and it was all ET breaks. And obviously the ultimate goal is to work your way up. And I think that's a competitive nature is, is to work to the top level. And, and I think with these big monster elite events, all it's going to do is, is inspire these younger racers and these local racers to want to participate in these events. At least that's my take on it. You don't have to go to these events. There's, there's nobody, you know, we're talking three, four, 500 guys from the whole United States going to a particular event. If that's hurting local level bracket racing or the local tracks, Saturday night stuff, we got a bigger problem than that. I just, uh, I don't see it. I think all it can do is help by, by giving, giving the racer something to look forward to to possibly be able to compete on that elite level. Now, I like that idea of kind of laddering up, leveling up. Cause that's how, you know, you, you used your experience. Like that's how my racing experience was. We were racing on Saturday night at Kennedy with the dream of one day taking that to the national event stage or to the, you know, the, the five grand or four hours down the road stage. And then you read about the million dollar race and things like that. And there was always a, a greater aspiration, so to speak. I think the concern at this point, and, and honestly, in a lot of ways, I think it's a valid one is, and I've argued before, I think it's unquestionable that the big dollar end of our sport is thriving right to to heights that we've never seen i think it's equally unquestionable that the local bracket scene that we grew up on is struggling probably more so to points than we've ever seen and and that's regional and geographic there's some areas and, and racetracks that still have a really strong program there's some that it's essentially non-existent but i think that the correlation between the two the cause and effect so to speak you get the racer who says well that big dollar race down the road killed my local program. I could argue that the cause and effect is opposite, like that the local purses, the local structure, again, the purses weren't commensurate to what the average competitor had invested. The, the structure wasn't conducive to family life. If you're going to stay out till three o'clock in the morning, every Saturday night, you know, right? Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of things working against the regular Saturday night bracket program. And when the option came available, People were just looking for somewhere else to go. And big dollar bracket racing presented that option. So I think it's fair to look at it either way. Now, with that said, do you have a concern? Because that level system, like that tiered system is, is how I grew up looking at racing. Do you fear that the initial level is eroding? Or like my, my fear is where do people get started now? as some of the local scenes begin to dry up completely. And that, to your point, I don't think that's a big dollar bracket racing program. I think that's a fundamental issue facing our sport. Sure. I think these local level, you know, or I shouldn't say local level because it's not a local level. I think the track operators, period, let's just cut to the chase. The track operators got to be more focused on what type of customer base they have, what their customer base is looking for. 
I come from a very strong facility out west. I say I come from I, where I grew up in Boise, Idaho, the Firebird Raceway, and the news out there do a phenomenal job with their local program. Mm-hmm. And they have a huge import deal. They have a huge club challenge deal. They have a huge streetcar uh, program. And all of that, they have, they have found that by implementing those type of structures and events, it helps their regular local level bracket race program because, again, those are stepping stones. And you've got to appeal to the kids that like the LS type cars. My son just got back from the LS Fest at Bowling Green this weekend. You, you couldn't get another person in there. I mean, it's, it's obnoxious at how many people attend an event like that. You've got to get to those guys to get them to the racetrack. And then there's a certain percentage that will migrate over to the local level bracket program, if you will. You know, these track operators, it's, they've got to figure that out. I, I just don't think that there's a way anymore to just run a regular program and pull, pull these new generation racers in to participate at their track. You got to pull, you got to pull them in with, with what they understand and then convert them to the bracket race. And, and I think you see that, you see that in the areas that have figured that out with the tracks that have figured that out. Whether that be the Norwalk or the Firebird or Huntsville, Bradenton. I mean, those 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 facilities pull, you know, and, and I'm not well versed in the Northeast, you know, with different facilities. But, I mean, those tracks figure out a program, get people out there, and you get them out there and they get interested. And, and that's what keeps their, their bracket program thriving. But I think, I think that we as bracket racers a lot of times think, oh, drag racing is, is not doing as well as it needs to because the bracket program maybe it's not doing as well as it is. But when you look at the streetcar stuff and the outlaw stuff and the no prep stuff, mm-hmm. I mean, the, and the L, just the LS, it's, I mean, it's, it's a remarkable program, man. I mean, it, I think drag racing as a whole, I think it's fine. Those are really good points. And to your point, I think that's where in a lot of ways, and we're all guilty of this, myself included, we kind of fall short in that conversion aspect. And I've talked about it before from junior dragster graduates into bracket racing. Like the conversion isn't what it once was and doesn't seem like it's as strong as it should be. And to your point, like all of these forms of drag racing that have become wildly popular specific to the younger generation, how could we as racers and track operators who obviously have a much more vested interest uh, in the long-term success of our sport and specifically, obviously right now talking about bracket racing, what are some of the things that we can do to increase that conversion rate? Well, I think they got to inter. I think they got to intertwine the classes at some point. And yeah, obviously you can't have a elite big money bracket race mixed in with a import shootout night. But there's no there's no reason you can't have eight guys there maybe with dragsters because I'm telling you know these a lot of these people that come out to import nights or streetcar nights they've never seen they've never seen a you know an elite big money bracket racing dragster or a you know a, somebody like Jeff Verde that uh, is known all over the United States I mean I mean he's for the most part a celebrity I mean if they if you could have an eight car type shootout or something like that there to get the interest. Just basically to introduce. Sure. I right. mean, if they're not coming out on the Sunday when bracket racing's going on, I mean, 
I, I don't know. I've, it's a whole other, different story, but I've always said that with NHRA and the loss of their fan base. Well, growing up and growing up at Firebird, John Force, Jim Dunn, Jim Head, I mean, Don Perdome, they used to all come match race at the Night Fire Nationals during our big money bracket race for the West Coast. And I mean, that got, that, that got those cars in front of all of these spectators, all of these racers. So then these guys wanted to go to whether to Pomona and see them or to Seattle and see them or where, wherever they're not allowed. They're not allowed to do that type of match racing anymore. So they're not in front of millions of people on an off weekend type basis. And they wonder why people aren't wanting to go to these other events to see them. I think it's the same way with, with our type of bracket racing. If we could get that type of, display in front of front of these kids or these this other generation um on these import nights or street car nights or test and tune nights i think i think we could you know i think there'd be a draw to some of those guys to come race you know our classes yeah it seems as though the the failure or the the disconnect at some level is cultivating that interest in the truly grassroots spectator and or racer well the same type of deal i i don't a lot of facilities you take Norwalk for example and I keep going back to Boise but they'll have I think those are two excellent examples for because long term success of I mean just as a business model in general I've always said because I'm more familiar with Norwalk obviously you're more, more familiar with Firebird I've always said if you purchase a racetrack it should be a requirement you got to go spend two weeks at Norwalk and just this is how you do it yeah <laughs> And I, and I should probably throw in like Woodburn out, you know, out West. And then you take like Denver, but they're all big at having, whether it be an eight car pro mod shootout or nostalgia top fuel dragsters, or even fuel altered types at their big bracket races to draw in spectators. Mm -hmm. And they advertise that to the general public and they get the general public to their facilities with jet cars or with, fuel alters or with nostalgia funny cars and they get people to the facility not only does it help pay the bills by getting in a bunch of spectators it also introduces those people to the form of bracket racing that we you know that we uh so much love and and i i think that if you could just pull in one or two people an event that's what it takes to keep this show going 100 percent I know you had alluded to a little bit uh, NHRA in general, and I know that your racing experience for the longest time, like that's where you made your mark in NHRA Supergas. And then you've transitioned to you know, almost bracket racing and covering the bracket side of the sport. I don't want to say exclusively. I know that on DraggersResults.com, you guys cover a little bit of everything. But what's your take on the NHRA from a sportsman racer standpoint? the Lucas Oil Series, where that has gone to and where it's headed in the future? Well, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, you know, when when I started NHRA racing, I mean, that's all I ever wanted to do growing up at Firebird. I mean, I, I was the first person from the state of Idaho to actually win a national event. So, I mean... Really? By the, yeah, by the, time I, by the time I was 18, I was building a super gas car because I wanted to go back then pro gas racing, <laughs> super gas racing. And that's what I wanted to do. And when I started doing that in the very late eighties and the early nineties, it was nothing 
to go to a national event and be over 256 cars in the first round of super gas. I mean, you think back at that. I mean, I I went to Columbus, Ohio one year and there was over 256 and you know, you go to a division race and there'd be 150 to 200 cars. I mean, it was cool. (laughs) And so doing that for so many years and, and I don't know what really started drawing it out for or drawing it out. It's not a good word, but what started where I think we started seeing the car counts pull back for me. Part of the reason was time. I used to be able to go to a division race and get there Friday night. So you could leave Friday after work, get there Friday night, Saturday, you got a time trial. Well, then they started making Fridays mandatory. And so if you didn't weren't there Friday and if Saturday rained out, you didn't get a time trial, you raced on Sunday type thing. So all of a sudden it pushed it to three days. Some of the bigger events, they pushed them to four days. And a lot of that was, was done, in my opinion, because the staff had to work such long hours. And they were trying, you know, there was a transition there where they're trying not to have all the employees and the track staff and the, the NHRA staff have to work from eight in the morning till two in the morning. And I get that. But when they started drawing it out to happen to be at a division race for three days and four days. And, and as I got older and, and had a family and had to actually pay bills, it just made it tougher to go to these longer divisional events. And same with the national events, the national events, there was a lot of three day national events and they went to four day national events. So, I mean, that for me is what made it less inviting to travel to those. I just couldn't take off as much time, say, to go to a division event that even with a great contingency program back then, you could maybe make $3,000 where I could stay home and race my local bracket scene, two-day event for, you know, $1,500 a day or whatever. So that for me was that. I don't know if I got off track on that or not, but... (laughs) No, no, not a bit. And I think part of it is just competition and i think where over the years from the sports and racing standpoint nhra has you know notably fallen short in terms of you know customer services and maybe customer service but just like a welcoming atmosphere and then you've got bracket race promoters that really picked up on that and said we want you you know what i mean you and and that obviously makes a difference as well i mean believe me i miss racing on the big stage i mean there's nothing cooler than win in Pomona and rolling down in front of whatever it was, 50,000, 80,000 people in the stands and you're driving down in front of them and everybody's yelling and, you know, you're getting your picture taken right alongside Joe Amato and, and Gary Ormsby. And, you know, those were the guys that were the, were the guys when, when I was doing it, but there's nothing cooler than that, but man, it's just, uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough when you look at it and the amount of time that you got to, spend at the divisionals to be able to attend those national events and and I made a push years ago that to some people at NHRA trying to get the Lucas Oil events the divisional events to be more of a of an elite event you know if if those events were you know $5000 to win and only 3 day events and such to where those events were more of an elite event and then took a smaller amount of people because they're trying, and I get their TV deal for the national events and trying to cut down the car counts for that. That that makes a lot of sense 
to me because I understand what they're trying to deal with. They're, they're looking at an, there's only a certain amount of hours that, that a fan will want to stay at a racetrack and, and you can't have 14 hour days at a national event. It just don't work. So I get having 50, 60, 70 car fields, but I think if the divisional events were more of an elite event for the racers that want to participate in those classes, I, I think that would be, I think they're missing the boat there and then somehow have a qualifying type atmosphere to be able to get to the national events besides <laughs> just participation. You know, I think you have to be, you know, certain in the, in the top so many in points to be able to go to this, not necessarily just that you went to seven events last year so you can enter Pomona. To that point too. And I agree with you and, and I'm on record as to, you know, I'm a, I'm a, pretty big advocate of NHRA, even though I realize it's got its blemishes, just like yeah. for my season in life, it makes a lot of sense for me. It's a, you bet. It's a, it's a very family oriented deal, you know, on down the line. But I will say kind of to your point, and there is like from a competitor standpoint, there is nothing cooler than rolling back up the return road in front of however many thousand fans, you know, on Sunday or Monday at Indy and, and right. holding the Wally. I mean, that's a big deal in the moment. But I would also say that the prestige that once went with NHRA competition, not that it's dwindled necessarily, but the other forms of competition that are available to us have really caught up. Like having your name featured in National Dragster, probably as big a deal as it used to be, maybe. But there's so much more out there with what you've done with DragStrangles.com, with live feeds, you know, live streaming events the amount of attention on big dollar bracket racing there are several of those events that i think are every bit as prestigious to have success at if not more than any event on the nhra tour and that's just kind of the changing of the guard the changing of the times would you agree yeah i would, I would certainly agree nhra runs the i don't know if the best show but it's definitely the biggest show of anything that that we compete in and that's not taking anything away from what bracket race llc pete and kyle do uh, it's not taking anything away from the the million or what sfg put together you know a couple months ago but when it comes to professionalism and racing at the biggest facilities and the glam and then of course just having the pros there that's a big deal uh, there's nothing better than that but i think i think if you were to pull the sportsman racers as a whole and and put these big money bracket races out there i think the the purse is the trump card i think that's the easiest way to explain it the purse is the trump card i mean you i was fortunate enough will holloman was driving my dragster up at the sfg 500 race a couple months ago and he got down to four cars so at three o'clock in the morning i'm on the starting line with 250 other racers standing around looking like a lights out type race uh with cameras going and lights going and a lot of money being talked about i mean there there's nothing cooler than that type of atmosphere and when you look at what the paydays are that's a cool deal i don't i've been fortunate to win some pretty big national events and and those were neat in their day but i would have to say that the money's the trump card yeah hard to argue with that I'm going to take you down the road just briefly on a couple of the most recent hot button topics in our sport. Our listeners are well aware of Jed and I's stance on these, but I'm interested to get 
another take from, again, someone that's been around the sport on so many different levels. You alluded to it briefly earlier about when you started racing. Obviously, Casey Pesnell broke the internet, <laughs> got a ton of attention for winning $50,000 race at just 14 years of age, and fueled quite the debate within the racing circles. And we dedicated basically an entire episode of the podcast to said debate. Does Casey Pesnell or any 14-year-old unlicensed driver have any business behind the wheel of a race car? I'm just a rules guy. You know, I grew up NHRA racing. I grew up out west, and most of the tracks out there adhered to to NHRA rules or sanctioned body rules, and and that's what it states. So, I like the idea of a line being drawn in the sand somewhere. I've been one to say, hey, obviously the kid did a great job. I mean, he beat Will was driving my dragster down there at Montgomery and and lost to him. The kid can obviously do an adequate job. I just I think. There's got to be a line in the sand somewhere. Right now, my personal feeling, it's with a state-issued driver's license. I'm not going to debate whether there's a rule about that or not a rule about that. That's just my personal feeling is that you got to have a driver's license. Maybe someday, maybe there's room in our sport or our program to come up with a big car type qualification for certain drivers. I just really struggle with the fact that there are certain people, whether it be participants, racers, track operators, promoters, anybody that would have the position to be able to manipulate the rule. Mm -hmm. So if we draw it at 14, then does that, well, this 13 year old guy, or we do it at 12, at some point there just has to be a line in the sand. And, And my personal feeling is right now it's at 16. But I don't know. It's funny for our listeners. I didn't bring Scott on because I thought that he would absolutely echo basically everything that I said in our podcast. But you did just echo like everything that I said well, in our that, podcast. That, that's <laughs> interesting because I didn't. I didn't listen to the. Yeah, no. It, I admit it, I didn't listen to the podcast that you guys talked about it. But Jed and I, I took opposite sides of the debate, and I think he made some really valid points. I hope that I did too. But no, I'm. I'm. They call me old or a stickler or whatever. Like, I agree. There just need to be rules in place and, and be adhered to. And I think if there's one knock against the big dollar bracket racing culture as it stands right now is that at times it feels like the wild, wild west. And I think yeah. that that's something that needs to be reined in. Yeah, so sometimes things are just vague. And I think, I think, you know, we have a lot of very experienced racers at these races that we go to and and for the most parts they do just run themselves but their rules are put in place for a reason and and i think when i started when i came up with the the idea for the dr ultimate series three years ago some of the best advice i got from my good buddy mike ledford up in stanton michigan and from george howard who i actually called prior to doing this when he was still alive and they both said put whatever you can on the flyers because you know, that's what be what you fall back to as far as your rules and adhere to them. And that will, that will make your events go much smoother. And, and I just think that's something that you, that you need to do. And I think that that's, you're right. That's something that's, that's missing in the big money culture right now. And I think needs to be addressed by just so everybody understands what playing field they're on. Yeah, I agree 100%. We had a big scuttlebutt a couple of months ago about the idea of house cars, which is not 
a newfangled idea by by any stretch of the imagination has been brought to light a little bit more recently. Either put on whatever hat you want as a racer, as a car owner, as a um, event promoter. What are your feelings about a promoter, track owner, whatever the case may be, staking a racer in an event for a cut of that racer's winnings? Well, on the promoter side of it, I we didn't have house cars and I would just say that that the skepticism, drama, however you want to put it, isn't worth being affiliated with any car in, in the program. I, I don't really disagree with it or agree with it. I really don't have a take on that. Um, I, I just it doesn't bug me one way or the other. I, I don't. I the events I go to, I feel I can win when I go to there. It doesn't matter to me whether they are or they're not um, involved with the promoter. I just think as a promoter, you're better off to avoid any of the skepticism. And, and I feel that it's tough enough as a promoter to draw in a customer base. And I feel that there's a pretty good base out there that doesn't like it. So why, why even possibly chase off some of those customers, you know, by having one, two, 50, however many house cars, I, I just don't feel it's, it's an advantage. So as a racer, I, I really don't, it doesn't matter to me. Um, one bit, I, for the most part, you know, going into these events and I think it's a, a wild west type thing that you reverted to. I mean, it's, it's been going on since George Howard put the million together. So, you know, it's nothing new for me. Sure. No. And again, I kind of echoed similar sentiments because as a competitor, like I could care less who paid the entry fee of the person in their lane. It's not like they have tower power, right? Right. Right. So you got to go out and race. But I also agree largely, like it's just not a great look. And as a promoter would just avoid going down that road. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interested to get you take one last thing and then I'll let you go for today. And this has been fun. And hopefully our, uh, our listeners are intrigued by this enough as much as I am, that uh, oh, I we do this on a little bit more regular basis. But specific to the, the big dollar bracket scene, there's a lot of ways from a promotional standpoint, a uh, race promoter standpoint, to skin the, the animal, so to speak. There's a lot of different ways to present this. And Jed and I actually probably spent far too long discussing the intricacies of this on one episode. And I don't know how necessarily interesting it was to everyone besides ourselves, but the format of okay, what Pete and Kyle are doing with the Spring Fling or the uh, the Fall Fling Five Hundred, basically by necessity, is everybody gets one shot, which is kind of like the core roots of bracket racing, right? Yep. Can't double enter any which way. And I would argue that in this day and age, with the demand being as high as it is, you can actually get away with that. You know, there was a time when we had to have double entries, we had to have buybacks. To, to subsidize the purse. I don't know necessarily that that's the case today, but there's a lot of different ways to go about this. The SFG model is you can double enter any which way, which you know, a lot of people argue is, is more fair, right? You, I think, let's back this up a little bit. The Falfling 500 is probably the most fair format. It's the simple format. But if you're going to allow double entries, a lot of people would say, let you double enter any which way. Same car, same driver, what have you. The B&M series, which was basically what all of big dollar bracket racing followed for years and years and years, said that you can double enter as long as you drive two different cars. 
a lot of different ways to go about that uh, from a, maybe a fairness standpoint, from a competition standpoint, from maybe just your preference as a racer. There's probably a market for each of those, but what would be your favorite race structure? Well, I mean, there's so many things to think about that are good and bad about both scenarios. And I think a lot of that a lot of people don't think about. And I'll I'll present one to you. For years, the spring fling or the yeah, I guess it is a spring fling. I get my races straight. The spring fling in Vegas didn't have a double entry rule, right? You you couldn't you couldn't double enter a a, the same car. Same car couldn't put in the track twice, right? Correct in Vegas. Correct. So for guys back here traveling out there. If you had only one car or didn't have a spare car and you went out there and you had a problem, you were hung. And that's that's an expensive trip. Same type of deal if you're trying to get racers from out west to come back here to whether it be Bristol or the Million, any of the races that go on back here. If there's not a double entry rule and you have a problem, boy, that racers, I mean, that's an expensive trip. And you can you can say, well, that's, you know, that's just is what it is. That's part of the game. Oh, that is tough, <laughs> you know, because because we, uh, you know, we put a lot of laps on our stuff every weekend if, if you have some success. Mm-hmm. So I like the double entry rule for that particular reason to be to, to allow the racer to have an option in case they have a problem with a car. They can at least jump in their other car or another person's car and still continue to race for that weekend. I don't really have a favorite either way. I like the idea of, of one. I think it will loosen up the racing a little bit. The one car, one entry at Bristol, I think you'll see a little looser racing there because of it. If you're going to have a double policy, I think it has to be the same car, same car or two cars, however you want to do it, just for the sheer fact that that allows anybody with one car or two cars or multiple cars to be able to double enter. So I think back in the days when when the B&M series was going on, they could get away with saying you had to have two cars because I think the argument was basically no two cars are the same. So if you have two different cars, it's really no advantage. Well, you and I both know now um, you can pretty much build your cars identical. It's pretty simple. I've got two that run very close to each other and there's not a whole lot of difference besides the paint job on the cars. So I don't think there's an advantage or a, let's say a disadvantage by running the separate cars as there is to run in the same car. So I think back in the day, the argument was you could, uh, well, the cars aren't the same. And so we're not going to allow a guy to double the same car because that's an advantage. Well, today, I don't think it matters either way. You can have two cars. It's not an advantage and you can double the same car and that's not an advantage. So it doesn't matter to me, which, you know, which they offer. I think if I had to choose I think I'd choose for double entries just for the sheer fact of, of allowing somebody with a problem with their car or a racer with a problem with their car to be able to, to jump into a different car. And that's probably, to double uh, with another driver. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably the only, that's probably the, I mean, the main reason. Fair enough. That all makes sense. Any, um, any parting words on the, the current state and or direction of our sport that we haven't covered to this point? No, I, I think we had a lot of topics. And uh, I, again, I just want to go back to, I, I think drag racing as a whole, it's real easy to, to look at our own little box, whether that be big money bracket racing or the, 
what's going on with the NHRA or what's going on at the local level and say, well, things just aren't really quite great. But I, again, I think if you, I think if you look at the whole state of what's going down the racetrack from the LS stuff to the, to the uh, street outlaw stuff, to the, the streetcar shootout stuff, I know from our part on our part side of the deal and the, and the companies we deal with and the manufacturers, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a very upbeat, positive community out there uh, talking to the other, you know, our advertisers, the, the engine shops, the other parts manufacturers. I mean, everybody's busy. Everybody's very excited about what's going on. So I think it's real easy to get caught up just looking at, at our own little, our own little deal. But I mean, if you look at big money bracket racing down to all the other, like you said, multitude of 50 granders and 20 granders, there's a lot of racing going on. So I'm not sure how we can, we can be too worried about it at this point. No, it's uh, the optimism is, is refreshing to be completely honest, Scott, because we get bombarded through social media, through message boards, whatever, of everything that's wrong with the sport. I think that you do a really good job of bringing that into perspective and be like, yeah, sure, there's concerns. There's always concerns. But overall, this thing, this thing is better than we probably want to admit. So I appreciate that. You bet. So, all right, buddy. Well, thank you again for coming on. Um, like I say, I hope to have you on again in the future. I uh, appreciate you joining us here on the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. I appreciate it, Luke. We'll see you at the racetrack. All right, buddy. I want to thank everybody for tuning in to make sure that you're the first to know when next week's episode is available. Subscribe. And you can do that on Google Play. You can do that on iTunes. You can do that wherever you are accessing our show today. Just subscribe. That way that you know that you have got the latest edition of the podcast. You'll be the first to know. And do us a favor. Tell your friends about the podcast. Get your track involved by broadcasting portions of the Sportsman Drag Racing podcast over the PA on race day. BTE is one of a few full-service transmission companies with a full array of manufacturing and testing capabilities. Their in-house CNC facility is paired with an extensive collection of gear hobbing and shaping machines to produce any high-performance driveline product. From, From inception, BTE's racing products are designed, prototyped, field tested, produced, inspected, and even shipped by real racers. Just outside of Memphis, Tennessee, their warehouse and manufacturing facility in Mount Pleasant, Mississippi, is stocked with thousands of parts and centrally located in the United States for fast delivery anywhere. All right, you know that thisisbracketracing.com is your online resource if your goal is to become a better racer. At least if you don't, you should. But did you know that thisisbracketracing.com also houses a multitude of part sales, parts that uh, you need or may need for your racing operation? And while we've got competitive pricing, while we run um, uh, sales occasionally, I'd say that the biggest um, caveat that we have for online part sales on thisisbracketracing.com, the biggest selling point, is that we don't sell everything, okay? I leave that to, to the professionals at JEGS. In fact, I order from JEGS nearly every week. Um, but what you find on thisisbracketracing.com is nothing but parts that either myself and or Kevin Brannon 
depend on personally, that we use in our own cars, that in many cases we have supplied um, video explanation of why we depend on these products, what um, specific model or part number of these products may work for your specific application and why. Um, some of the parts um, and lines that we carry on thisisbracketracing.com include AirTech, APD, Autometer, BTE, that's Bill Taylor Enterprises, Dead and Bear, Dixie Racing Products, Flowfast, FTI, Milodon, Olens, and a handful more. Um, again, no part on thisisbracketracing.com. Um, no parts available on the website are not run by either Kevin and or myself. So if you want to get on there and check it out, see what we have to offer, the selection is growing by the day. Uh, you can check that out now at thisisbracketracing.com slash parts. And remember, This Is Bracket Racing Elite members get a 10% discount on all part sales through thisisbracketracing.com. Banging on the door, bump, bump, bump until I get it. Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is, at each event, there are 100 plus entries, there's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.